to me. So I'm going to go ahead and read that and then I want to basically it's it's not it's not going to be topical but it, it is in a sense in that uh, there's so much here that that Paul has assumed so when in in verse 19 he says he has this very dense um, statement where he says for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God um, what in the world does he mean by through the law I died to the law this is a very difficult statement and uh, so I want to explore that just a little bit because what he is saying is going to be uh, extremely relevant for what uh, what he's going to say over the next chapter. So chapter three and even even into chapter four. The issue in in this section, really in chapters two through four, is the problem posed by the Mosaic law. Right. So there is a a problem that is posed by the Mosaic law. And the problem might be presented like this. The purpose of the Abrahamic covenant was to bring about a people composed of Jew and Gentile. In other words, this way of viewing the world as basically divided into two parts, the Jew and the Gentile, was the first century worldview of the Jew. And so when, when Paul himself is talking about all of humanity, the way that he would say that is Israel and the nations, Jew and Gentile, and that's everyone. The problem that the, that the law poses and I'll reiterate this several times, but the problem that the law poses is that the law, by its very nature, even though it's not bad, by its, by its very nature was intended to separate Jew from Gentile. Think about that. By its very nature, the Mosaic law was intended to separate a people from the rest of the world. But the Abrahamic covenant was designed to unite a people. And this happened in the Messiah. And so what Paul is doing is he's navigating this very difficult topic of what is the relationship then of the Jew to the law. Okay? And so we might say, well, we're not Jewish. It doesn't relate to us. Um, it, it doesn't directly but it does have ramifications for the way we understand the scriptures. And if we don't, we won't understand half of what Paul says if we don't understand what he's getting at here. And we will misinterpret the whole book of Galatians. We'll think it's about something else. We'll think it's about these medieval topics of uh, is somebody working their way to heaven or are they uh, given the gift of heaven by grace? That's typically how the book of Galatians is construed, but that's not what's going on in, in Galatians per se. There's, that's kind of peripheral. The main issue is brought out in this story about Peter. Peter, uh, The story about Peter is basically an illustration. I don't use that lightly, but it's like an illustration of the problem that he's going to deal with in chapters 3 and 3 and 4. And uh, chapters three, uh, three, three especially, but uh, three and four are going to be 
they're going to become very difficult, difficult to interpret. But if we think of them in terms of the Jew, Jew and Gentile composed the whole world. The Jew was given the law to separate himself, to separate the nation from the, from the other nations. In the Messiah, the, Abra in the, the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled in Jesus. And his goal, the goal of what he accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection, was to create one people composed of Jew and Gentile. But the law stands as a, a barrier between Jew and Gentile. So something, something has to give, something has to give. And so this is his exposition. This is transitionary, but it's his exposition uh, into his transition into chapter three, where he's going to explain um, how it is that, that the law, it's not that it dies, it's that it is crucified. The law itself is crucified, and I too, and, and the Jew is crucified then to the law. So let's, um, let's start in chapter 2, verse 19, read through 21, and then I'm, I want to get into um, how it is, what it is that he means uh, in this. If we need to, we'll, we'll pick this up a little bit later. Every time I went through this, it got a little bit longer, so I won't, uh, won't overwhelm you, but with a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of detailed stuff, but um, but this is very important to understand if we want to understand Paul. Okay, so uh, 2.19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been, <clears throat> I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And so there's a lot to talk about here. Uh, there are lots of things that need to be defined. One thing that I'll just throw out uh, real, real briefly is that Paul is working within a covenantal context, and we're going to see this in chapter 3 when he starts talking about Abraham. Abraham is not simply an example of how somebody believes in God. The purpose of chapter 3, and, and really of the whole book, is to say that we, how do we know who is a child of Abraham? How do we know who are the elect? Right? How is, it that, how is it that we come to find out in whom the covenant is fulfilled? Who is in the covenant? That is really the question that, uh, that Paul is answering. And this term righteousness, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Righteousness has to do with a status of covenant membership a status of covenant membership. It doesn't have so much to do with morality. It's, of course, it's moral, but it, it has to do with morality. It has to do with covenant membership. For if covenant membership were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Okay, so think about that. Try that for, for Romans as well, because that is the sense that, that Paul is using for the word righteousness. Um, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as covenant membership. 
And what does he do immediately after that? Genesis 15, 6, he makes a covenant. Same thing in Psalm 106 with Phinehas. Uh, Phinehas, it says of Phinehas that he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, or he doesn't say he believed exactly, but since it was counted to him as righteousness, his deed, whatever he did. And then what does he do in Numbers? He makes a covenant with him. This is covenantal language that, that Paul is using, not, not specifically to say this is how we, uh, we do what is right. It's often been put, righteousness has often been put in those terms that if you do what is right, that's righteousness. And how do we do that? Well, we have to believe in Jesus, and then he's done what is right for us, and, and therefore we don't have to worry anymore. That's not what's going on here. If righteousness, that is, if covenant membership were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. But what Jesus did is to bring about a way that covenant membership could be to Jew and Gentile. Right? He's bringing about the covenant of Abraham. This is why you have in the Gospels. In the Gospels, uh, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he says, Look, don't boast that you're able to, that you're sons of Abraham. God is able to make from these, these stones children of Abraham, right? But that's the issue. Who is a child of Abraham? And what Jesus says is that the way that you discern that you're a child of Abraham is by believing in me, right? Pistis, faith. Faith is how, faith in the Messiah is how we determine that. Okay, so um, how do we explain, though, the practical language here? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. These make sense. These make sense, but they're not always easy to explain. This, this particular verse makes sense. It's not always easy to explain. I'm going to attempt to do that uh, today. Now, recall the incident with Peter. What had happened with Peter is that he had come and he was eating with the Gentiles. Now, if you are keeping the law, this is a no-no, right? You do not eat with Gentiles. And this comes back to the point that I made earlier. The whole purpose of the law was to separate, was to, was to divide Israel from the nations. And this was intentional. This was the, the law's design was designed to, the law's design was to separate Jew from Gentile. Now, even if they had misunderstood uh, something about that separation, I don't think they're very far off. The Jews that come from James in chapter 2 understood that if you are a Torah observer, you don't eat with Gentiles. That was a no-no. You don't do it. What Paul calls Peter out for is that Peter had understood that the, that the good news was that now Jew and Gentile are, can be in one body in the Messiah, and they can eat together. And so when Peter comes and, and withdraws from, from table, uh, table fellowship with the Gentiles, Paul calls him out as a hypocrite. He says, look, you are, you are building up what you tore down. You should keep it torn down. Keep that barrier between Jew and Gentile torn down because this is what, the, this is what Jesus died for. Right? If not, he died in vain, right? This is fundamental. We have often viewed, we've often viewed Galatians and Romans in terms of how does, how does a sinner get right with God, right? 
But what Paul is concerned about are the, the blessings of Abraham going to the nations. Now, this involves forgiveness of sins. It involves, uh, it involves getting right with God. No doubt about it. But at back of this is this, this mountain of the Abrahamic covenant that has now been fulfilled in the Messiah. And now Jew and Gentile can be joined in one body. What Jesus' death and resurrection had done was to break down that division between Israel and the nations, fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. The chief goal of the Abrahamic covenant was to bless the nations. Remember, remember Genesis 12. Genesis 12, 1 and 2. He calls Abraham and he says what? What does he say in Genesis 12? Now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, and this is the key point, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now how is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? Well, this is, what, uh, this is what Paul is dealing with. He says, Paul says, this happened in the Messiah. So Abraham is not simply this um, exa good example of how to believe in, in Jesus. No. What he's saying, what Paul is saying, is that the covenant has been fulfilled. The chief goal of the Abrahamic covenant was to bless the nations. And Paul says, in the Messiah, this has now happened. If that is the chief goal, the thing that stands in the way, and this is what Paul is dealing with in this chapter, the thing that stands in the, in the way is that good but temporary God-ordained law that had separated Jew from Gentile. It's in the way now. This makes sense of a lot of things like Colossians. Colossians, he says, he's, he's basically nailed the uh, the... The, part, the things that separated you from Gentile, the handwriting of requirements that were against us, he nailed them to the cross. What is that? It's the law. It's the law. That is standing in the way from the uniting of Jew and Gentile into one body. Peter had been, by his action, reversing what Jesus had accomplished. Now, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. These three verses then serve as a transition between the story of Peter and Paul's interrogation of the Gentile, of the Galatian believers um, in Galatia. And this, uh, recall at the beginning, we said this is, a, this is a letter that was meant to go around to all the churches of Galatia. So Paul is being here, he's being here preventative, but he's also being prescriptive. So he's telling people, he's telling the Galatians, look, don't let this come in, because if you do, you are going to reverse uh, the accomplishment of the Messiah and basically turn the Abrahamic covenant on its head. Now, these three verses relate specifically to believing Jews who had been living under the law, but who had been brought out from under it in the Messiah. And we might think, wait, these things aren't very relevant for us as Gentiles, right? Um, we might think that he, uh, he is talking to us as Gentiles. This would be a mistake as well. 
he is talking to the churches of Galatia who are Gentiles, but he's not telling, he's not basically saying to them, um, you were under the law. He is talking to the Galatian Gentiles about the Jew who was under the law and how they don't need to come under the law as believers in the Messiah, right? They don't need to be circumcised. Their identity doesn't need to be under the law, but in the Messiah. We looked at that issue of identity at the, at the beginning of the book. Another way that we might think of this that I think is, is not exactly right is we might turn this into a, a works-grace comparison and say something like, okay, we, we died to work salvation, which is represented by the Torah, the law, and now we live by grace salvation. But uh, this, is a, this is actually a very specific argument that has as its core the relation of the Jew to the Mosaic law. And we would do well to understand it. What's interesting uh, in, in the, way that, the way that Paul, the way that he writes, when he writes scripture, so uh, if you think of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul narrates the Gentiles into the story of Israel so that, in effect, the biblical story of the Jews, of Israel, and then later the Jews, becomes the history of humanity. Think about that. The history of Israel, and thus the history of, of her relation with God, and the history of the relation of God with his whole world, is Jewish history. It's Israel history. That history becomes the history of all of humanity. So that this is why God's dealings with Israel is actually relevant for us as Gentiles. We have been narrated into the story of Israel, and we have come to know Israel's God, right? That's it. So uh, even though it doesn't directly relate to us, like I don't think any of us are tempted to go out and, and try to keep the whole law, it is, it is important to us to understand um, the law in relation to Israel and, and, and the Jew of the first century. It's even more relevant today because there, there are movements out there of Gentile churches that have been built up around the idea of Torah observance, Sabbath keeping and Torah observance. So we need to understand this in order to, as, as a prophylactic, right, we need to prevent this from happening uh, within, our, within our churches and prevent the undoing of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, but at the same time, it is also prescriptive. So how do we, how do we act in relation to what God has done in, in fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant? It essentially means what we've always known it meant, that all people are welcome, regardless of ethnicity, into the family of God. Now, let's, um, let's look at these verses, and let's see if we can and understand the, the nitty-gritty of, um, of this phrase. In, uh, in verse 29, Paul says, I, through the law, died to the law. Now, who is the I in this verse? Who is the I? If you, 
if you step back from this and you think about Romans 7, Romans 7 is basically, Paul is doing the same thing that he was doing in Romans 7. The I here represents the Jew under the law. And the Jew in this text is Paul, placing himself as the representative Jew under the law, who then believes in Jesus and comes out from under the law. We must then see what Paul is saying about being under the law and how Christ brought him out from the law. Within Paul's thought, the law had several, was doing several things at once. But one thing that it was doing was bringing the Jew out from under the law. And when we talk about bringing the Jew out from under the law, we're talking about bringing the Jew out from under the condemnation of the law. And here's how the story works. We can, we can accomplish this much better if we think of it in the broader story of Israel in relation to it. All of mankind sinned in Adam, right? Adam was the representative head of all humanity, and he sinned on behalf of all people. We say we're in Adam. That language comes, from, comes right from Paul. Paul says, uh, in Adam, all sinned. In the Messiah, all will be made alive, right? So in Adam, all sinned. In the Messiah, all are made alive. Now, <clears throat> within the story of, of the biblical text, the answer to the sin of Adam was Abraham and his descendants, specifically the covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants and his seed. Okay, we're going to see that word seed pop up uh, quite a bit in, in chapter 3. I'll repeat that. Within the larger story of the Bible, specifically Genesis, the answer to the sin of Adam, which dragged all mankind into sin, was to be Abraham and his descendants. Okay. Think of, we, we often think of these little stories as just little stories unto themselves. But if we look in terms of the, the broader book of Genesis, these are related the calling of Abraham comes right on the hills, for example, of chapter 11, which is the Tower of Babel. So as to say, this is where mankind has ended up in Babylon because they are in Adam. God's answer to Babylon and to Adam, chapter 12, Abraham. The call of Abram to come out, and God makes a covenant with him and to his descendants, and he says, this is going to be the answer for all mankind. Okay. The covenant with Abraham envisioned that in your seed, that is, in Israel, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Israel then, like Adam, failed to bring blessing to the nations. Right? This is the sad story of the giving of the law and the wandering in the wilderness. What does Hebrews say about the wandering in the wilderness? The whole generation died off. Why? They did not believe. What did they not believe? Right? I think what's going on there is that they did not take their role 
in relation to the nations seriously. And they didn't believe God in what he was doing. So what God had said was, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. Why? Why would God need a kingdom of priests? Because the nations need to come to know Israel's God. Instead of becoming a nation of a kingdom of priests, they come out as a kingdom with priests, needing to be interceded for rather than bringing, bringing to the nations the blessings of Abraham. Israel then stood condemned. This is the story of the Pentateuch. At the end of the Pentateuch, uh, Moses is saying, you are going to go into the land, but guess what? You're not going to stay there long because you are going to sin and God is going to scatter you among the nations. The Jew stood condemned because he had a mission to fulfill that was given to him through the covenant of Abraham. In the first century, so we're back to Paul's time, had the nations partaken of the blessing of Abraham envisioned in Genesis 12 and echoed elsewhere in Isaiah 2, Micah 4, Isaiah 35 and 40, where it says, all flesh will see the glory of the Lord. Chapter 55, had the covenant been renewed where all who thirst could come to him and drink? Zechariah 14, were all the nations going to come to Jerusalem? Whose fault was that? Was it God's fault? No, it was Israel's fault. But this is the broader story that we're dealing with when we get to the first century. The Jew, those from Judah, that's all it means, those who, who went into exile, the second exile, the second exile, one, the one that went to Babylon, had come back from exile physically, geographically, but they were under condemnation. They were under condemnation because they had not fulfilled their covenant obligations to the Creator. Now, it should go without saying that what I'm what I'm not saying here is that this gives us any kind of reason to be anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish or whatever, as some in history have done. This is what I'm saying. The covenant with Abraham envisioned at its fulfillment had the Gentiles meant that the Gentiles would partake in the blessings of a renewed world. Forgiveness of sins would then be extended to the nations. Before Jesus, uh, before Jesus, this had not happened, and Israel was at fault for it, because they stood condemned under the law. They had been entrusted. They had been entrusted with the Word of God. This is what Paul says in Romans 3, 2. What advantage has the Jew? Much in every way. First, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, why, would, why is anyone entrusted with anything? Is it for themselves or is it for someone else? This is the point that Paul is making. They were entrusted with the oracles of God for the nations. Then he asks another question. But what if some were unfaithful? The ESV is spot on in their translation of this. What if some were unfaithful to the mission? That's the point. This is assumed then in the rest of the exposition. They were unfaithful. Having been entrusted with God's oracles, they failed to deliver them to the nations. 
we perhaps should learn a lesson here as well. We are to be about our calling as well to go to the nations, right? The sin of Israel was a failure to fulfill her calling. She had not been faithful to her calling to be the light of the world. This is what Paul is after in, in, in Romans 2 and 3. They called themselves a light of the world, a guide to the blind. But yet, some among Israel had not been, uh, the name of God was blasphemed among them, right? They had failed in their covenant obligations. They had the Abrahamic covenant. They knew that it was supposed to be fulfilled, but they were not a light to the nations, as Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 66 tells us. They were to be a conduit, conduit through which the nations would be blessed. Now, uh, this is where it gets, it gets a little bit complicated here. As we seek to explain what the law of Moses had to do with the failure of Israel. So we've said that, the, that Israel had failed. Right? She had failed in her covenant obligations. She had been driven among the nations. She was now in exile and in a state of death. What does the law of Moses have to do with this failure of Israel? Why does he say, I through the law died to the law? And then secondly, how is the crucifixion of Jesus the answer to the problem? I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, Paul says. The problem that he's dealing with here, it's not the only problem, this, this is the problem he's dealing with here, how do I, or how does the Jew, I should say, how does the Jew come out from under the condemnation of the law? For the Apostle Paul, the Jew of the first century was a person, or a people, we might say, who had been given the law of Moses as they come out of Egypt. God, through this law, wanted to do several things with the people that were living under it. It had been given originally to bring the people near to their God, but instead it pushed them afar off. Remember at the, at the giving of the law, Moses says, um, what are you doing? What are you do and they said, you speak to us, but don't let God speak to us. And they stood afar off. This is not what God intended, but this is the reaction that they get. What they do by this is they show that they themselves are in Adam. They do exactly what Adam does at the, in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam sins, what does he do? He hides himself, right? He stood afar off. The, uh, the author of the Pentateuch is meaning to reflect on that notion when he describes Israel after receiving the Ten Commandments, standing afar off. The law, which was meant to give life, resulted in death for Israel. And it condemned them, not because it was bad, but because they were bad. Now, by the end of the book of Deuteronomy, the verdict is, on, uh, is in on Israel. They have corrupted themselves, Deuteronomy 32.5. They are not his children, it says, because of their blemish. A perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, he says, 32.6, O foolish and unwise, unwise people, is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? This is the main point of the Pentateuch. The disobedience and the condemnation of Israel under the law had the effect of preventing the blessing that Israel possessed 
from going to the Gentiles. I'll say that again, because we're going to see this in verse 12 of chapter 3. The disobedience of Israel and the subsequent condemnation had the effect of preventing the blessing that Israel possessed from going to the Gentiles. That's a big deal. Unless, unless this can happen, God cannot be faithful to his promises that through Israel he's going to bless the world. How does he accomplish this? This is the situation under which the Jew of the first century finds himself. This is what Paul, where Paul found himself. Israel, the circumcision, as we've seen in, in, in this book, had not simply sinned in the sense that they had done a, bad, a few bad things. No, they had failed in their mission to be a light of the world, a guide to the blind. They failed in their calling. But Jesus did not. Jesus, as the embodiment of Israel, we saw this in the Gospel of Mark as well. Here he's embodying the faithfulness of, of Israel in his own body. As the embodiment of Israel was obedient even unto death. And we'll see in chapter 3 that he might bear the curse under which Israel had been condemned. This is a very specific curse. This is not just a general curse. This is the curse of the law. So in chapter, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, we'll see that Jesus bears this curse of the law so that, he might, you might think he was, he's going to say, so that they can be forgiven of their sins. That's not what he says. Jesus embodies the faithfulness of the, the true faithfulness of Israel until death so that the blessing of Abraham might go to the nations. He embodies the, the faithful son, the faithful son, Israel, and goes to, goes to the cross in obedience unto death, bears the curse so that the blessing of Abraham could then go to the nations. That's quite a different take on it than, than, we've, than we've heard, but that's exactly what he's getting at in, in Galatians chapter 3. Read it, starting in, um, starting in chapter 3. Thirteen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And then he quotes that, so that... In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit by faith. Now, that's very interesting. We don't think of it quite in those terms, but this all has to do with this larger issue of God being faithful to do what he said he's going to do with Israel. How is Israel going to fulfill her purpose, her calling? The way that, that, that Israel fulfills her calling is in the Messiah, in the Messiah. That's the way Paul sees it. The law of Moses needed to expire in some sense because it had served its purposes. We'll see this also in Galatians 3. And the way that it would expire would be through the death of Jesus. Jesus is the goal of the law, Romans 10.4. Think of it this way. All of mankind's sins in Adam, all who are in mankind in Adam needed to be redeemed, brought out from the exile of death. 
God's plan and promise was then to, uh, to make Abraham and his people, people a conduit through which all the nations could be blessed. This plan was on track for a short time when it began to run into problems. Specifically, the people of Abraham became unfaithful to the mission they had been given and to deal with this unfaithfulness until he could bring about his goal of, of fulfilling the covenant with Abraham, God put in place the law of Moses. But this solution was not intended to last forever, because while it did what God intended broadly, setting apart a people through whom he could bring about his promise to Abraham, it would also create problems for that people. Not because of its nature, which was holy and just and good, as Paul says in Romans, but because of the people to whom it was given. It turned out that they themselves, who were to be the answer to, a to Adam's problem, found that they too were in Adam, in exile, among the nations, and in death. They, like Adam, were condemned under the weight of the commandment. But God in his wisdom had planned this all along to glorify himself and his son. And in fact, God's, and in fact, God's solution would do what only it could do. God would bring the sin of Adam into one people and then to one person among that people, to the body of Jesus, in order that God might there, in the flesh of Jesus, condemn sin. God brought the sin of Adam into one people and then to one place, the body of Jesus, in order that God might condemn sin in the flesh of Jesus, Romans 8, 3. And in doing so, he would enable everyone who believes in him, in his glorious resurrection, both Jew and Gentile, to come out from under the condemnation of sin. For the Jew, that meant coming out from under the law, through which sin had ruled them and under which they stood condemned. The law had enhanced the sinfulness of sin by heightening it to transgression. Right. If there's no speed limit sign, it may be a sin to go 120 miles an hour, but it's not a transgression. Okay. When you have that sign that says no speeding, speed limit 55, sin becomes a transgression. And this is what the law did with Israel. It turned sin into transgression. It heightened it so that, as Paul says, sin became exceedingly sinful. For the Gentile, who did not have the law, Jesus' death meant coming out from under the rule of sin, which had done its work in the Gentiles as well, but it had not done what it had done among Israel, because Israel actually was under a more burdensome load. The law had condemned them. Thus, when, when Paul says, I died to the law through the law, that I might live to God, he means that through the law he died in the condemnation of the law. But that in Jesus' death he died with Jesus, who bore the condemnation of the law on Israel's behalf. Thus, Paul, and anyone who's in the Messiah, is counted as crucified with Christ. If you die you're no longer subject to the law which was ruling over you. And what Paul says is that the Jew 
can come to Jesus and die with him. And because of the Messiah's resurrection, Paul and anyone in the Messiah can also live a new life of resurrection. Now, lest we truncate the, the means by which God is going to do this, we shouldn't neglect to mention the Spirit, which is exactly what Paul is moving toward in chapter 3. The way, the, the, the operative way that the, the Abrahamic covenant is going to come about is by the sending of the Spirit. The Spirit is not simply just this, this add-on. The Spirit is the means by which the covenant is produced, uh, is renewed. The sending of the Spirit on all flesh, right? This is what the prophecies were about. This is the means by which God is going to renew the covenant. The means by which God would then accomplish the mission that he had intended all along through Israel and with Jesus as the embodiment of Israel would be the Spirit, the beginning and the end of God's mission to rescue the world. Thus, chapter 3 will begin, next week we'll see, that it begins with a strong rebuke and chastisement of the Galatians that uh, evidenced by the fact that we are now holding the book of Galatians, it must have worked, right? He chastises the Galatians, and yet they maintain this book, right? They keep this book, they pass it around, they, copy, they make copies of it, and we have this book. So it must have worked. So this chastisement uh, was, was worth it. We'll see that he opens with that next week. Those who would force the Galatians to be circumcised in order to bring them into bondage under the law and out of the realm of the Messiah's resurrection ultimately lost the fight. And then in verse 21, and the grace of God remained operative and brought about the righteousness, the covenant membership through the faithfulness of Jesus to the task that he was given. I do not nullify the grace of God. For we could, we could reverse this and we could say the righteousness, covenant membership then comes through the death of Christ and by our faith in, in the faithfulness of Jesus. That's how it comes. Now, next week we'll begin looking at O Foolish Galatians, but we'll look at it um, in the backdrop of, of this whole big, long story of Israel and her failure uh, to bring about the Abrahamic covenant and then Jesus's, uh, Jesus's fulfillment of the covenant and the sending of the Spirit, which basically makes it operative. So. And I, I would like to say, if, if, if there's anything that, um, if you want to talk about these things, um, I'm happy to talk about them. I think this is extremely important for understanding both the book of Galatians and the book of Romans, for understanding Paul uh, in general. And it's, um, anyway, it's very important. If you want to, if you want to hang around and uh, chat about it, I'm happy to, to do that with you. Thank you, Pastor Jared. Yes, sir. Thankful that uh, God keeps his promises even though we mess up. <laughs>
Yeah, absolutely. And, and he's, he's continuing that. I think that's, that's the, the thrust of Paul is that God, we are the way by which God keeps his promises now, right? In the Messiah, in, in Jesus, we, we are the way through, uh, through whom God keeps his promises once again. And so uh, Israel as a whole was unfaithful, but God, God was faithful in, well, in Paul, for example, he's, he says in chapter 9 of, of Romans, he says, look, God has not been unfaithful. I am a Jew, right? He is evidence, he says, of, of God's faithfulness to, through, through the Messiah and then by extension through Paul and the apostles, who were all Jewish, to send the glorious gospel to the nations. And so then we, as those who are among the nations, uh, then basically pick up pick up the crumbs, if you will, and we go as well, right? That's, that's, that's the idea, I think. 